As we have been um, looking at uh, these same texts over the last several weeks, uh, Genesis 1-1 and uh, Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 31, we're going to be reading them again this morning uh, before we consider them and consider the Word of God. So, turn in your Bibles then. Uh, you scarcely need to turn to Genesis 1-1, but it would be good for you to uh, put yourself in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 12. So the Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the book of Isaiah is a great commentary in so many ways upon God the creator and God the redeemer. In Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 12 in particular, we have God exalting himself as the God of all creation. So hear these words. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as, dust, as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness." To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. One who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to naught, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. 
His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Lord God, as we consider your word this morning, it is our prayer. Give us such a measure of your Holy Spirit that we can understand clearly the things that you are proclaiming to us. Help us to take in your word with depth. Help us to find in your word that which nourishes our souls. Help us then also to have such confidence in you and your word that we will trust you at all times. And then, Lord, by the power of your word and spirit, by the power of your word as a means of grace, work in us to will and to do your good pleasure so that we can faithfully be to this world, to our generation, salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to uh, remind ourselves this morning that uh, the takeoff point for the series this year is really some words which we find in Luke chapter 24, uh, words written about uh, the experiences of two disciples on the road to Emmaus following the resurrection of Christ, not knowing that Christ has risen from the dead, hearing different reports from uh, the women and the disciples, being uh, very saddened in their spirits, uh, leaving Jerusalem, walking toward the city that's about seven miles distant. And Christ appears and walks along with them. They don't recognize him uh, until finally he has uh, a meal with them and then he opens up to them as he is walking along with him, he's opening up to them the truth about what has actually happened in Jerusalem. And so he says to these two disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? <clears throat> and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. One of the themes of the New Testament that originates with Jesus is that all of the scriptures bear testimony to him. Uh, in John chapter 5, uh, when the Jewish uh, leadership is, is persecuting Jesus strongly, he says to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have everlasting life, but it is these which bear witness to me. All of the scriptures speak of Christ. But often as Old Test the Old Testament is read by Christians today without a, the ability to perceive Jesus in all of the Old Testament. So believing that this is an important thing for us to be people of all of the book, important for us to understand the Old Testament properly and correctly, uh, what we're doing through this year is following through this theme of Christ in all of the scriptures, Christ in the Old Testament, uh, reading the Old Testament in such a way that we are able to see this is Jesus that's being spoken of, even as Christ said 
that all of the scriptures, properly interpreted, testify to him. Now we're beginning, our start-off point here is really creation. Uh, Genesis 1.1. There are many passages in the Old Testament that actually uh, reflect upon and speak to Genesis 1.1, and one of these passages is this section in Isaiah. But also we should recognize that Genesis 1.1 has a tight connection with the first three commandments, which, you know, uh, given to Moses on the Mount Sinai, and God says, I am the Lord thy God, who has brought thee out of the uh, land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. Commandment number two, shortened form. You shall not make unto yourself any graven images of anything, nor bow down and worship them. And then commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, those three commandments are actually reflected in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. Those three commandments also are at least implicit in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because as we shall see, so much of what the Old Testament proclaims about the God of Israel has as its background and context the paganism that was throughout the world. Uh, the Israelites themselves had spent 400 years in Egypt in a pagan, idolatrous country. They were going to be going into Canaan, where all those seven nations before them were, in fact, pagan, idolatrous nations, practicing things vile, uh, which paganism ultimately always produces. Even Abraham himself, came, coming out of ancient Babylon, came out of a pagan, polytheistic, idolatrous culture. There are those who look at our culture today and Western Europe and recognize that the spirituality of the West cut itself off from Judeo-Christianity in Europe a hundred years, years ago or more and in the United States since the 1960s. And what has replaced Judeo-Christianity as a default kind of setting with respect to how we think about God, how we think about creation, how we think about these things, it has been clearly replaced by the resurgence of paganism. The kind of spirituality that uh, that great theologian, Oprah Winfrey, has been uh, producing again and again on her program and propagating over the last, I don't know how many years, has been nothing other than a modernized version of paganism. All the people she has on that she applauds their religious spiritual perspective, it's all tied into paganism. Paganism is now the default setting of the spiritual people in the United States of America. And that's why that's the second thing we need to recognize as we're reading the Old Testament. We need to be able to see not only Christ, but the pagan background to which our Savior came into this world to rescue us from. Now this morning, thinking about the third commandment, because we've looked at the first commandment, we've looked at the second Thinking about the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We need to see that there's three specific things that that commandment would call us to do as a kind of an outline for what I want us to see this morning. First and foremost, that commandment was a correction to the Israelites and how they would relate to the name of the deity. 
the second thing we need to see is in that third commandment and in the name that we see there, we've got to see the, the positive vital connection between the name of God in the Old Testament and the name of Jesus. And then thirdly, uh, the third commandment, which focuses upon the name of God, would remind us that the Old Testament Israelites bore the name of God upon themselves. We bear the name of Christ upon us. And therefore, the third thing we need to recognize is because we bear the name of our God, we have a very specific calling in this world. So three basic ideas. The idea of correction, the idea of connection, and the idea of calling. So, first and foremost, I want us to see that in the idea of correction, uh, the third commandment is all about how we properly respect and properly use the name of God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, the NIV translation. Uh, thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, the old King James Version. Either way, it's an understanding that the name of God is to be respected and treated properly. Now, the background of the third commandment, uh, for those who read this kind of theology, you can find us in Gerhardus Voss's Biblical Theology, he does a wonderful job of pointing out that the background of the first commandment and the second commandment and the third commandment is the paganism of the ancient nations. And so you need to understand something about paganism to appreciate the force of the third commandment as it was originally given. So I invite you to look to that diagram that I have in the bulletin for you, just a simple diagram so you can understand the worldview and nature of paganism. And you can read the little things that are said there, but what I want you to visualize, first of all, is this circle. And the circle recognizes, or the circle it represents all of reality. You might call this the cosmos. You might call it the universe. You might call it every jot and tittle and aspect of reality, defined in this sense of a circle, with three important ideas inside that circle. The idea of deity, or divine powers, the idea of nature, the world around us that you see, and the idea of humanity. Now, the circle represents this. Everything inside that circle is made of the same stuff, the same essence, the same nature, the same being. And you notice the lines of separation are dotted lines to represent the fact that there's no hard and fast division between humanity and nature, nature and God, God and man. Paganism held the idea that everything is ultimately one thing. So the powers of divinity are not different than the powers of humanity, nor different than the powers of nature. The second idea in paganism, besides everything being ultimately one thing, is that human beings, being one with nature, are also one with the divine powers. And the heart of paganism is the desire and sense of taking those elemental powers that exist in the cosmos, which they called gods, and defined them in terms of the polytheistic gods, to take those elemental powers that exist in nature, 
and nature and the gods are ultimately one, and to use them, to manipulate them, to be able to take that power and to use it for a person's or a nation's own agenda. We want to win a war. Let's appease our God so our God will be favorable to us and give us the power to win a war. We want our crops to grow. Uh, we want to uh, make sure that uh, our, our nation is taken care of that way. Uh, and so we have our gods of nature that we're going to worship and satisfy or whatever. But inside of this religion, you are thinking perhaps, well, that sounds like magic, doesn't it? Because they're one and the same. The religion of paganism and magic are one and the same. There is no distinction between them. And so within paganism, there were, in terms of its magic, there was all, always the idea that words have creative power. Word magic. So that what we can say will come to pass. Now, you know this if you ever watched Walt Disney as a child and saw the magic that was given in Walt Disney. This is where I learned about hexes and incantations and spells and the darker side curses. Magic, word magic, is involved in all of those kinds of things. You can manipulate reality by the very things that you say because the word itself is creative. Now, of course, that's a counterfeit of biblical truth but that's the heart of paganism. Within paganism and word magic, the most significant kind of word magic was name magic. In the ancient world, and you see reflections of this in the Bible, what something is named is what something is. So the name represents something's essential identity and nature, or even its power. Name magic was huge in the ancient world. And the name of the gods that they desired to manipulate would hide those names. They wouldn't willingly reveal those names. You might, in fact, have to sacrifice your baby and shed your baby's blood in order to get the name of that god so you could avail yourself of that power for your own agenda. But that's what the pagans practiced all sorts of ritual, all sorts of perverse rituals in order to gain power to promote their own agenda. Pagan religion is all about the manipulation of power for what one wants to do himself or herself. That's the heart of it. That's the background for the third commandment. This is what the Egyptians had taught the, the Jews who were slaves. This is what the Canaanite nations were going to practice. This is the ancient background for Abraham when God delivered him out of that. The whole thing was to build a name for oneself by using the names of the divinities to promote one's own agenda. So what would pagans typically do? Using their name of their gods to cast spells, hexes, incantations, curses. What are you attempting to do when you curse someone in the name of your perverse God. Kill, murder, take his life. Let's go back to the third commandment now. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That word vanity there, falsehood, 
is connected to and tied into all the words of the Old Testament that speak about idols. Idols were called falsehoods, deceptives, deceptive things. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not do this. In essence, God is saying, don't use my name to ever curse anyone else. There's no greater sin than to try to make God an accomplice to your evil, life-taking agenda. The worst thing you can ever do is to curse someone in the name of the true and living God because not only have you sinned against that person, but you've also sinned against the God who says, you cannot use my power that way. That's why the Israelites were superstitious about the name of God. That's why they quit saying the name of God. That's why they would substitute the Hebrew four-letter consonants for the name of God with the letters, the vowels that go to the word Adonai. And, you know, we come up with this word Jehovah. Now, in paganism, you had to do something incredibly immoral to get a God to reveal his secret name to you. So let's go to Genesis 3. Moses has been out of Egypt for 40 years in the land of Midian, Sinai Peninsula. As he's shepherding, he comes upon a strange sight, a burning bush that isn't consumed. He approaches that bush and he hears the words say, Moses, take off your shoes because the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. And then out of that bush, the voice speaks to him and tells Moses, you are going to go down at my command into Egypt and you're going to deliver my people because I have remembered my covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses says, but... When I go to do this, they're going to ask me the name of the God that I'm doing this for. So look at Exodus 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God freely gave his name to Moses. Act of grace. No works. Entirely an act of grace, God opened up the secret of who he was and gave it to Moses. Because the, the name of God is who God is. The name is I am who I am. It speaks of God's eternal nature and ultimate sovereign existence. I am the God who always is. The supreme being however we want to describe it, the God who's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. 
And God's name is who he is, and he freely gives this name to Moses to freely give to the people of Israel. God's name is not like any other name. And unlike paganism, God willingly gives his name to his people. That's why the commandment then says, you must treat my name with ultimate respect and with ultimate love and with ultimate obedience. My name is not for you to use. I have freely given it to you. My name is for you to respect, to exalt, to love, to worship. That right attitude about God's name is what Psalm 115 about idolatry begins with. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. The pagan wanted the name of God in order to exalt themselves for their own glory and aims and purposes and devices, no matter how perverse those aims might have been. And the faithful Israelite says, not unto us, O Lord, but to your name be all the glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. We come to the New Testament. When Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, he was teaching how we are to protect and promote the name of God in the very first petition. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is the believer's proper response, proper obedience to the third commandment. How then are we to reject everything that paganism would influence with respect to our lives? It's to reflect upon the proper approach and treatment and use of the name of God. To treat the name of God as a person not as a source of power. As a person that we would love and honor, not as a power that we would ever seek to manipulate. To give to God, who is his name, ultimate respect and faithful love and full-hearted obedience. Now, the connection. The connection between the name of our God and the name of Jesus. The New Testament makes this connection powerfully and clearly. You might be thinking of Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul, having described Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not think equality with, something, with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself and made himself one with us, made himself a servant, even a servant, humbling himself even unto death. And so we pick up at verse 9 that says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, what? The name. The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Now, what you should know is that the Apostle Paul is echoing a passage in Isaiah and tying it into the person of Jesus. The passage in Isaiah goes this way, chapter 45, 22 and 23. The Lord God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out my word in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. You see, the Apostle Paul is declaring that God's name has been bestowed upon Jesus. All creation must bow to the name of Christ. And, and then in John's gospel, we know that John's gospel strongly reflects the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a passage in chapter 12 that makes that identification between Jesus and God and the Old Testament very clear. In John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41, we read this. Though Jesus had done so many signs before him, before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we what who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And then John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John says, Isaiah saw these things because they saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him, Jesus. Now the passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, that atonement passage we read in Isaiah 53, but then also Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 begins this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated upon his throne. And then Isaiah's vision goes on to describe how the angels, the cherubim and seraphim surrounding that throne declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John is saying that Isaiah saw in the glory of the Lord the glory of Christ. The one who was high and lifted up and seated upon that throne, Isaiah saw was Christ. Christ was the God who appeared to the prophet Isaiah high and lifted up and upon the throne. But the connection becomes very specific to the name of God in John chapter 8, verse 58. That, that chapter in John 8, the last two-thirds of it, is, is all about this, this conflict, polemics between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. They're making these claims that he's a child of the devil. He makes the return claim. No, you are children of the devil. 
because you won't believe what I'm saying to you. And this goes back and forth. You can read this. It's one of the most incisive statements about the depravity of the human race and in terms of who our real spiritual father is before we're adopted into the family of God. But it climaxes in verse 58, John 8, 58, when Jesus says this to them. Before Abraham was, I am. Now everyone recognizes that the proper syntax in the Greek would have been something like this. Before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, um, I was. But it doesn't say that. It switches from the past tense to the present. Before Abraham was, I am. Because God doesn't have a past tense, a present tense, a future tense like that. He's the God who was, who is, and who is to come. He is the God who is eternally the I am. I am who I am. And when Jesus said, I am, he was identifying himself with the very one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. This is why in John 1.18, John says concerning Jesus, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. All of these visions of God in the Old Testament, all of the appearances of God in the Old Testament were in fact the second person of the Trinity. They were in fact the Son of God. They were in fact the one who came into this world incarnate. It was Christ. New Testament then is telling us, who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Christ. Christ was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the connection that we need to see. When, whenever we read the Old Testament and we come upon statements and references with respect to the name of God, we need to connect that with the name of Jesus. I'd also say that it's two important elements of our lives and as Christians. Who died for you? Who died for you on the cross? The infinite, eternal God in his incarnation died for you. For you. That's why the Apostle Paul, 20th chapter of the book of Acts, speaking to the Ephesian elders, could describe it this way. The church which God purchased with his own blood. No small thing to think that the one who died on the cross to save your soul was the infinite, eternal creator of all that is. Finally, the calling. The third commandment is stated in the negative. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But it always has a positive uh, requirement as well. The, the positive can be stated something like this. It is our responsibility to protect and to promote the name of God. Uh, that's what we're called to. Uh, even more so, since the name of our God has been put upon us. 
Now, we all know that Jesus Christ is the founder of Christianity. We also perhaps know that the very first way in which believers were recognized, they were called the way. Believers were followers of the way. But then within a very short time, in Acts chapter, I think it's, yeah, 11, verse 26, we read that at Antioch, the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. And by the mid-50s, when Jesus is, uh, when Paul is on trial before uh, King Agrippa, uh, shortly before he's then sent on to Caesar at Rome, King Agrippa says to him, listening to Paul, uh, you know, do you think that in such a short time you're going to make me a Christian? So the, the idea of Christian, the name Christian, that title given to followers of Jesus, had become, uh, by that time, the current abiding way in which believers were referred to. So that just in a few short years after that, here's what Peter says, and this is very significant. 1 Peter 4.16, talking about suffering and persecution as Christians, and he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's by divine providence that God has called us to be named Christians. The word itself means one who belongs to Christ, one who's intimately associated with Christ. But this means the name of our God has been put upon us. Your God who created you, your God who saved you, has been put upon you. And that means that is your identity, and that is the source then of your purpose. Christ, Christian, it's our family name. It's our tribal name. It's our citizenship name. It's our eternal name. It is our essential idea and essential purpose. So, Psalm 115, verse 1 again. Not to us, O Lord, but unto you give all of the glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. So Paul, echoing that thought, says, whatsoever you do, whether it's the smallest little thing like eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. That's why Ephesians 2.10 says, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which he's prepared in advance for you to walk in. Who are you? The one who belongs to Christ. Why are you? Good works that God's preparing for you and has prepared for you to walk in them. What is your identity? I am a Christian. What is your purpose? To live for the glory of Christ. That's why Paul has said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he who died, died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him 
who died and rose again on our behalf. What is your identity? Your core identity? Who are you? A Christian. Why are you? What is your purpose? To live for the glory of Christ. I can see the clock. I have to move to the end. I, I, I want you to understand, I want us to understand, going back to the passage in Isaiah, paganism was always seeking power. The God who created you is seeking relationship. The God of paganism is all about power. The God of the Bible is a person. And therefore, he cares about you. He loves you. It's about his relationship with you, that covenant relationship with you. Therefore, we relate to God as a person. But look at his power and, and what he's pleased to do with his power. Back to Isaiah. Beginning to verse 27, God is saying this. The everlasting God, the creator of everything that is, he's saying, I will give you all the power that you actually and truly need. He says, wait upon me. I will renew your strength so that you will soar on wings like eagles. I will enable you to run and not be weary. I will enable you to walk and not be faint. It's not power for your own agenda. It's the power of God given to you because of the difficulties and challenges and troubles of life against the world, the flesh, and the devil. God has freely given us his name. God freely gives us the power we need God freely would say to us, trust these words. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Amen. Father, if you would be pleased by your spirit, open up our hearts and minds to the glory of your name, even the name of Jesus. Amen. Conclude with hymn number 163. Let's stand.